Turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you would. How many know what this is? Yeah, it's a phone. It's an iPhone. It's, it's my life, almost. Except, interesting thing about this, I, a lot of you will sometimes call me, maybe text me, and I don't answer you for the longest time, and you wonder why. Can I tell you why? It's not that I'm ignoring you. It's simply that I never have it on. Because it seems like I'm either going into a meeting or coming out of a meeting or going into church or something, and I just never want to be one of those, you know, that you're all of a sudden their phone goes screaming off and they're scrambling and throwing stuff around trying to get to it. And so I just leave it off. I mean, the the ringer part. And um, the bad thing is, is I miss calls. I miss texts. Or I don't get to them until later. It's not that I'm ignoring them. I just don't pay attention. And, and, and part of the text that we're going to look at today, it's about people who kind of do that with God. They're just not tuned in. They're not paying attention to. Therefore, uh, they miss a lot. So we're going to read about that today. We're in this series called Decision 2012. We talked about politics last week, but that's the only one. Uh, the series really focuses in on making decisions making good decisions that affect our life. And I think today there's kind of a major warning from Christ and an important passage to really understand. Have you ever read some of the warnings that are printed on consumer products? Let me give you a few. On a Duraflame fireplace log, it says, caution, risk of fire. Brilliant. On a Batman costume, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. Hmm, thank you. But I can kind of understand that with my grandson now uh, who, who would try and fly. On a cardboard sun shield for a car, do not drive with sun shield in place. On a portable stroller, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. They think they're idiots. They think we're idiots, don't they? Yeah, they, they do. And you know what? <laughs> I won't say it. Okay, sometimes we are. There was a German pastor and martyr uh, during Hitler Nazism and Hitler's regime over Germany. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A lot of people... Uh, moved him from Germany, wanted to get him out of Germany so he wouldn't be martyred, and brought him to the United States. And after spending some time here, he said, I, can't, I cannot be here. I have to go back to my people. I've got to pastor them. And he went back, and he ended up giving his life for the cause of the gospel because he stood up to Hitler and Nazism. But before he died, he wrote a book, and I would recommend it if you want to get challenged in your faith. It's called The Cost of discipleship. We live, we live in a culture of easy believism where many Christians or many people who call them Christians, themselves Christians or Christ followers, believe that all you got to do is believe, uh, believe, and that's good. And I would say that that's easy believism. Bonhoeffer would call it cheap grace. Let me just give you a little sampling of what he says. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow upon ourselves. It's the preaching of forgiveness without preaching and requiring repentance change. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confessing our sin. Cheap grace is grace Without discipleship, being a true follower of Jesus is what discipleship is. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. 
speaks volumes, loved ones, to where the church is today. I'm not talking about Creekside, I'm just the church. Jesus, we're going to read from today, he concludes his Sermon on the Mount with some warnings, and I believe needed warnings, and challenge us to make some decisions in our lives. And he's going to bottom line it for us, and he's going to say, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's going to say? Talk is cheap, but his grace isn't. Easy believism doesn't enter you in to a relationship with Christ. Most of us laugh about the mob. When I was in high school, I used to read a lot. I always liked learning about the mafia and everything, and I read a lot of books about the families and I was always amazed, you know, that some of the most religious people were the mafia heads. You know, Gotti and people like that, you know, they, they literally, they'd go to mass three or four times a week. I suppose if you're, you know, whacking people, you better get there. <laughs> but, uh, but there was, a, but, 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 but it's a great picture of while it's the Catholic church, it's really how we operate too, that we just believe if we just go and confess, but nothing ever changes that we're all right. I'm going to crowd you a little bit today because I want you to know that's not true. We, we really don't get that option in this thing called Christianity. I want you to think about this. Because I'm going to have you share it in just a minute. Have you learned something recently here at this church, regardless of who the speaker is? And it began to kind of change your life a little bit or brought change to your life. And you said, ah, that I heard, I'm going to do this. Or maybe you did something in your own personal Bible study as you were reading that you said, aha, I got to change this because of this, because of what I just read. I want you to think about that for a minute. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount. Oftentimes in a sermon, it's the biggies that come at the end, the climax. So these are probably some climactic things for him to communicate to his people here. And he says this, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's a pretty big qualifier, loved ones. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name we drove out demons and performed many miracles. That's pretty impressive. But I'm going to tell them plainly. (laughs) I never knew you away from me. You evildoers? Well, what about that sweet little Jesus guy? Well, verse 24 says, therefore. Why is therefore there? Because you want to find out what the therefore is there for. Well, the therefore is always referring to what just precedes it. So what I just read ties into now what we're going to read. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, who? Jesus, what words? His talk. And puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and it beat against the house. Yet, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose up, and the winds blew, beat against it on that great house, but it fell down with a great crash. Then Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as one of their teachers of the law. 
Jesus contrasts here someone who hears and does what he hears with the person who hears and doesn't do it. Here in this passage, Jesus is contrasting a hearer and a doer versus a a hearer and someone who doesn't do. That's the decision today I'm talking about, to be someone who's a doer, not simply a hearer. In the passage before this, Jesus is talking about two roads to take, two trees, and the fruit that comes forth. He talks about the deception of being deceived by others, but in this passage here, he really warns us about ourselves and how possible it is while we can be deceived by others, the greatest deception is always self-deception. So Jesus tells us, don't fool yourselves, don't be fools. It's not enough just to say the right words without doing what Jesus says. My pastor said this back when I was on staff there in the 80s, and I put it in a lot of my Bibles so I never forget it. He says this, Jim Plummer said this, no spiritual experience will last a lifetime. No spiritual experience is valid unless it is followed by a walk equal to the experience. Did you get that? This is my concern, loved ones, as a church that emphasizes people entering into relationship with Jesus, being baptized. We celebrate those things. But this is where I'm challenged recently, is that I don't ever want anyone to come to this church and believe that those things alone is going to get them into heaven or bring them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I see too many people who come and get, woohoo! I made a decision, I got baptized, and then we never see him again. I don't believe for one minute that that becomes their asbestos suit from hell, and I don't ever want you to think that either. There has to be a follow-up experience that matches the decision and experience that you made. Otherwise, it's never an experience. Now, I know there's probably people here today that you're just kind of on this journey trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus Christ, and that's good. We welcome you. No problem. But I'm just letting you know that some point down the road, as people have either made a decision or you make a decision, Jesus said, count the cost. Because it isn't just, well, make a decision, get baptized, and boom, we're done. So the first thing I want you to see is is don't just say it, but you got to do it. That's verses 21 through 23. Being a Christian is more than saying the right words or a profession of faith. It's action. It's your life. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 17 talks about that because you are encountering the person of Jesus Christ, there is transformation, change that is taking place from glory to glory, from experience to experience, day by day. Jesus said we'd know a false prophet by their fruit. And he's saying about us, you can tell a true Christ follower by his or her fruit. And what is the fruit? It's the fruit of doing what God wants you to do and not doing what God doesn't want you to do. What do you call someone who professes faith but doesn't live it? What do you call them? Yeah, hypocrite. We don't like that word. I don't like it. But for people who are blatantly disregarding what they know is right and do the other, well, that really is what a hypocrite is. And we begin to live under this easy believism and cheap grace that thinks that, oh, Jesus covers it. I I think he does. But my greater concern is, is where are you with Jesus? Jesus. Because he does cover our sin. But it doesn't seem like all the good things that we do are necessarily going to cover that if we're not living and doing what he says. Is a verbal profession of faith important? Absolutely. We ask people to do that around here in different ways. Sign the box today if you made a profession of faith in Christ or a recommitment or sometimes we'll ask people to raise their hands. Or sometimes we'll say, you know, if you want to make a commitment to Jesus as you leave today, tell the person you came with, why do we do that? Well, it's important. 
Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said this, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. There are no such thing as secret saints or stealth saints. Jesus calls us to publicly acknowledge him and openly identify with him. That's why we do baptism. But Paul said in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, say it, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and you are justified. Your mouth you confess and you are saved. See, when you believe, you stand up publicly and say, I'm going to be counted for Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you've got to be a nuisance and go out on the street corner. It just means when there's opportunity, yes, I am a Christ follower. I am a believer in him. But hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. This confession is only the starting point. If it stops there, then you have to begin to evaluate the validity of it and if it's gone beyond your head, into your heart. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, I want you to see some of the things about this, this profession that Jesus is talking about that comes from somebody. Some believe all you got to do is confess. You know, I've had people call me, Pastor, i got a relative that's going to die. Can you come over here and get them to just say Jesus is Lord? As if that's, no. Wasn't that what it says? Just believe, confess Jesus is Lord. People believe that. It's not true. Uh, <clears throat> Pastor, have you ever read that story about that thief on the cross? Yeah, I have. And I'll tell you what he did. He believed and repented on his death cross. There was a change of heart that Jesus saw. The words don't save you. It's the, change, it's the words change of heart. And for those of us who are on a cross or on a deathbed, it's a change of life. You cannot get around that if you read the Bible. So the first thing to see about those words is that, uh, first, it's, it's, an, it's, or, it's an orthodox. It's an orthodox statement. Jesus is Lord. This is the first confession of the early church. And it remained its simplest core confession. It acknowledges the deity of Jesus Christ. For Lord was a term that the Jews only applied to God. It acknowledges his deity, his godliness. It, it acknowledges his supremacy over all, nothing else. There was no Caesar over them, although they submitted to him. But ultimately, it was God they submitted it to. And they, didn't even, they weren't even supreme over their own life. Jesus was their Lord. What he wanted, they did. What he said, they did. Secondly, I want you to see it's kind of an enthusiastic, Lord, Lord. And the, and the, double, the double statement of it kind of suggests that the speaker is drawing attention to his zeal, his fervent confession. It's orthodox. He's enthusiastic about this Lord. And the third thing is it's public. He describes ministry that he's done in the name of Jesus. He said, Jesus, in your name, we prophesied. In, in your name, we drove out demons. In your name, we performed miracles. They did all of these things publicly. Wow, that's a pretty good profession of faith. So what's not to like about it? Well, Jesus said, back off. I don't know you. You're an evildoer. See, what is going on here is this person had the right words, the correct orthodoxy, but he didn't have a relationship with Jesus that had the correct orthopraxy that did what he said. I never knew you. Jesus calls for us to follow him, to enter into this relationship with him. The Christian life, loved ones, at its core, at its heart, is simply a relationship with Christ. It's not a saying. It's not a creed. It's a relationship. We know him, and he knows us. We walk with Jesus. We do life with Jesus. We don't just commit a sin, go to mass, or go to church and confess it, and then go out and live the same way. 
Luke's version of this is very clear too. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 says, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you know what? You don't do what I say. You've got a better plan. You've got your own agenda. It's a little quiet here, I know. But can you catch the tension of this passage? Jesus is saying it is possible to say, Lord, Lord, have a nice confession, even do great things, miracles in his name. And and Jesus says, sorry. How can someone do miracles in his name and not know him? Isn't that what he would want us to do? I mean, you're saying that there's got to be stuff that he wants us to do. What about that great verbal profession? Well, what Jesus is saying here, loved ones, is it isn't enough to say, it isn't enough just to do. God's looking for a relationship that's transforming your life. See, it's not an either-or proposition. It's both and. James 2, James tells us essentially the same thing with a little different slant and different verbiage. He talks about having faith without works and that belief is nothing. Listen to what James 2, 14 through 17 says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily bread. If one of you uh, says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. See, it's just these rhetorical questions that James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, he's saying, listen, Faith without works is dead. Now, you're not going to get saved or come into a relationship with Jesus because you do these things. But there should be things that when he speaks to you, you're doing. James 2, 18 through 20, following up says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Now, notice this. And this is where it's really important to understand. Even the demons believe that. Mark chapter 5, there was a demon-possessed guy runs up to Jesus and he begins to say, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, Son of God. He was confessing until he's blue in the face. That doesn't make you a Christ follower. James is saying clearly the same thing as Jesus. It's possible to confess Christ with our words, but deny him with our lives. There has to be a congruency a both and. Real faith is living with Jesus and doing what he is speaking to your life. So the second thing is, is don't just hear it. Live it out. Do it. Verses 24 through 27. See, first Jesus says it's not enough to say the right words, but now you've got to do what God says. Here he says that it's not enough to hear. Do. Jesus uses a well-known illustration for these people at this time in Palestine. Many of them would have, people used to build their houses on a flat, sandy valley floor where it was really easy to build. It wasn't a lot of rain, but in some winters, uh, uh, when they had rainstorms, it would turn the valley into a flooded area that if it was built in the sand, it would simply sweep away these houses. What is Jesus saying? Man, you've got you to build your home on a rock. It's solid. Uh, look at these pictures. Maybe you'll identify this. What's that? Yeah, Lane Tower Pizza. Pizza. Here's another one. See? Uh, that's leaning, isn't it? Pretty crazy. Now, and then you can see a couple of people up here. I love this. This is like the tourist thing to do. You know, they all, they're all holding it up. And, you know, if you ever go to the, the pizza, then make sure you get a picture like that and give it to me. But this is what the, the tourists do. Now, Prior to the restoration that, the, that began on the, on, the, on the Tower of Pisa in 1990, it was a 182-foot tower, and it had 17 feet of slant. It was out of plumb by 17 feet. At that time, 1990, they estimated that by the year 2000, if they didn't restore it and reconstruct it and recalibrate it, that it would tip over and it would take out a nearby restaurant and collapse. So they started the restoration and they began to work on it. And guess what? They brought it back to now it's only 12 feet out of plumb. Why did they do that? It's called economics. 
They knew that if they didn't have the Leaning Tower of Pisa, not many people would probably go to Pisa. So they still have the tower there. But what's the, what's the idea? Well, do you know what Pisa means? It means a marshy land. Aha, that's why there was problems there. They built this on a marshy land without reinforcing it. See, you, you know this. We have a lot of construction workers and people in our church that understand building. You've got to have a good foundation. This passage that I read, it isn't that one guy didn't labor. They both labored. One just didn't build on rock. He built on sand. Well, what is the building on rock? Luke, uh, Luke 6 makes it very clear. It is our obedience to Jesus. Jesus is the rock, and when we obey him, that's what we're building on. And Jesus says, you know something? Then when the storm comes, and hear me, loved ones, you know this if you've been around very long, storms will come. And what does he say? When the storms come, your house will stand. Now, some scholars, they have two takes on this passage. Number one, the storms are the issues and troubles and difficulties that we all face in life at different times. Some of us get more of them, some of us get less of them, but we all face them. Other scholars say that this is when we face death. The ultimate storm in our life is going to be death, and then we stand at the final judgment before Christ. Will we be able to stand, or will we fall there? I believe both applications can be made. But let me just quickly talk about the storms of life that we often face. Some of us today, we might, we don't escape, and maybe some of us are here. You got a financial storm, you lost your job you're starting to really stare at some financial pressures. That's a storm. Maybe a a relational storm. You and your spouse or somebody else, you're in a civil war and it's escalating with very little hope in sight. Or you're in a cold war where you just basically put your weapons down, but it's cold and you don't talk and you're not going to work it out. Or maybe you love someone and, and it ended in heartbreak. Those are all relational storms. Or maybe we faced a tragic storm where there was an unexpected death in the family. Maybe there's an illness or a health issue that's really depleting your life right now. So so this is my question. How's the structure of your life doing? Because see, how you survive depends on how and what you build on. I know people on both sides of this great divide. I know one guy who's failed miserably in business and lost everything. And basically what he did was he shook his fist at God and said, I'm out of here. Walked away from his faith. I know another man who was in his 30s and and his wife died of cancer suddenly. Lost her. 15 years later, now you know what? He's still loving God, still serving Jesus, and he's remarried. What's the difference? You know, both of those guys looked really good on the outside. Their house looked pretty nice and in order. What's the difference? One guy built on sand. The other guy built on the rock and lived what Jesus said so that when the storms came, it was real. He knew who he could trust. Hear me, loved ones. Storms will always reveal the true character of your faith. Not the good times. The storms will. Why is that? See, the storm doesn't cause cracks in your foundation. It only reveals the cracks that are already there. And that's why you see a lot of people, man, all of a sudden something bad happens. Oh, where's God? He's in the same place he's been for the last 2,000 years. He's up in heaven praying for you. Well, he doesn't love me. Yeah, he does. He loves you more than he ever, as much as he ever did. Storms come. He said it. But notice the wise, Jesus says, you build on the rock by doing what he says. The foolish build on sand. They hear Jesus' words, but they just can't do it or won't. Now, notice the wise and the foolish both, they hear Jesus' words. Can I just tell you something? Most of you, most of us, most of the Christian church are generally educated beyond our experience. We know much more than we put into practice. What I mean by that is we're very selective. If this fits our time, our situation, our circumstances, okay, Lord, I'll do that. But if I don't like it and I don't want to do it, I'll find every reason not to. I know what to do, 
but I won't do it. And then we wonder why we don't do what we're supposed to do or uh, do what we shouldn't do. And then all of a sudden over here, there's a storm in our life that we caused. It just happens. It's a byproduct. This is what I learned in my life. Obeying makes, makes me stronger. It builds my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a really cheesy, silly illustration, but it's really important to understand, you know what? I'm going to say not all of us, but most of us in this room, we're not dealing with, you know what? When it comes to sin and stuff like that in my life, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not tempted to bed some babe. I'm not tempted to embezzle funds from this place. I'm not tempted to go kill anybody most of the time. Those things probably aren't going to, I'm not saying they couldn't. But they're probably not going to happen in my life at this, after this many years. I'm aware of them. I got to deal with the small stuff. I got to deal with pride. It was some time ago, if, if most of you, if you've been around here, you know um, I love chocolate. I love candy. Uh, th- this Christmas, a lot of you were very kind and generous and gracious, and you give me a box of C's candy. Not this year. I just lost $125 to our staff um, telling them that by this date I was going to lose this much weight, and I didn't. <laughs> and so I'll take gift certificates because then when I do lose the weight, I can go back to C's. But, um, but I won't tell you when this happened, but I love Nestle's. I used to love Nestle's Crunch Bars until I moved up to the C's Candy. <laughs> Have you ever had one of these frozen? Oh, yeah. I used to buy boxes of these and stick them in the freezer because it was like the Lord Jesus Christ, my wife, my kids, my grandson, Creekside, frozen Nestle's Crunch. <laughs> Ecstasy, pure delight. Diabolical sin. This is what I did. Uh, you've got some in your uh, little thing there. Go ahead and pick one out. You don't need to eat it unless you want to, but mm, <laughs> it's so good. But this is what I used to do. I'm going to confess this. I used to get up in the middle of the night, no alarm. I would get awakened by this urge. I would go in in the freezer, pull one out, and I'm not kidding, I would eat it like in about 10 seconds. I didn't enjoy it. I just ate it, gobbled it, and it was so good for the 10 seconds, I'd go back to bed. Probably an hour or two later, I'd get up, and I'd do the same thing. On any given night, honest to goodness, I would do it two to three times. And I did this for a pretty good amount of time. One night, I'm standing at the refrigerator. I wouldn't even go sit down and enjoy it. I would literally open the thing, stand right there, and just throw it down. And one night, I'm sitting there eating in the morning, and, and I just sense the Lord say, you've got to stop this. Now, you got in, in nanoseconds, it unpacks, and I said, well, God, what's the big deal here? What are you bugging me for? I'm not smoking. I'm not drinking. I'm not going to girls who do. You know, I'm not chewing. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I just want to have a couple of candy bars in the middle of the morning. Big deal. What are you bugging? You know, and he goes, no, stop. Because right now, that is controlling you. So I hurried up and ate that one. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said, okay, Lord, from here on out. And that started this, uh, this phasing out on, on, on Nestle's Crunch Frozen at 2 and 3 and 6 in the morning candy bars. And I know that's really, that's really crazy, but it's the truth. And this is what I've learned about God. See, most of us, it's the small areas that he's going to probe, he's going to pick, and he's going to say, I want you to change this. I want you to deal with this. And every one of us, every day or every week, we've got to make a decision. Are we going to listen and do it, or are we going to blow it off? Because ultimately, it's the little things, it's the little Nestle's Crunch things that we say yes to or no to, and we don't respond to that voice, and then it leads to the bigger things that causes us bigger problems. See, you know you should change your 
oil to protect the life of your car. And if you don't, you'll have problems. But knowing about it won't change it. You've got to do it. Knowing you should exercise won't help you shed extra pounds and get in shape. Exercising will. In 2006, they did a study on heart bypass patients. All of them were told that their bypass surgery was simply a temporary fix. They needed to change their lifestyle, eat less, eat better, exercise more, reduce their stress, quit smoking and drinking. In effect, they were told, change or die. Guess what? Close to 90% of them did not change, only 10%. They knew, but they didn't do. Knowing that you should love your wife like Christ loves the church won't change your marriage. Loving your wife will. Knowing you should pray won't give you peace. Praying will. True confession. Most frustrating things about my job is I get to speak to hundreds of you every weekend. I say things, and each week you nod your heads in agreement. But a percentage of you do nothing. Some of you will do it. My hat's off to you. But many of you sit and you listen each week and do nothing, or you argue with it instead of going to God and saying, is this correct, is this right? And then you wonder why you don't experience God's blessing. Can I tell you why? It's because God's blessing is always tied to God's, is tied to God's doing. We don't like that because we like cheap grace. We like easy believism. But knowing is never doing. Why do you tell your kids, do this, do this, and do this? but don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. You know why you do it, because you know you want them to develop in the present and build their future. And you know that if they do what you say and don't do what you say to not do, they'll have a better life, don't you? Otherwise, you wouldn't tell them, right? Hmm. Heavenly Father, I don't know if I want to do this. You know, for how many years I've been here, I've always encouraged people to read the Bible four or five times a week. Ask God to just show you one, just give you one thing, one thought, and do it. Some of you do. Some of you have come a long way, but some of you don't. And then you wonder why you can't hear God. Then you wonder why God doesn't speak to you. Or you wonder why, well, I'm not moving forward in my Christian life. Or when I tell you about Nestle's Crunch, you wonder, well, how come I never get that? Well, because this principle in Scripture that I shared is let nothing control you. Don't be subject to anything. And that's what God said to me. Why? Because I knew it from his word. Listen, friends, sitting here and listening to this platform, whoever's up here, week after week will not change you any more than going to Dunkin' Donuts and sitting there having a donut will turn you into a donut. It just won't happen. Jesus is saying you got to do. William Barclay, a British um, Bible scholar who wrote a set of commentaries, while he's very liberal, he has a lot of great historical stuff, but he said this, there's a, little point in, there's a little point in going to a doctor unless we are prepared to do the things we hear him say to us. There's a little point in going to an expert unless we are prepared to act upon his advice. And everyone in here would say, yeah! It's like going to a doctor, you know, you got this displaced arm, fractured, compound fracture. You know it, I know it, everybody knows it, but the doctor's got to do an x-ray on it. So the doctor says, well, Terry, look at this x-ray. You see your arm here, it's broken here, and we got to do this and got to do that. And I say, oh, great, doctor, thanks for the info. You grab the x-ray, you run out, I'm going to take care of it myself. That x-ray doesn't help you, it just helps you know what's wrong. And that's what the church does too often. We know, we know, we know, we know. 
But Jesus said it's the foolish who hears and doesn't do. They're going to be swept away in life by the things that come, that are inevitable. James puts it this way in James 1, 22 through 25. Don't be deceived. Be a hearer, be a doer, not a hearer only. Because if you're simply a hearer, it's like this guy who goes to the mirror. He looks in the mirror, and when he gets up in the morning, he hasn't shaved, hasn't brushed his teeth, his hair's all over the place, and he goes, whoa, that's not very good. But then he runs out, and first thing he does, he doesn't change anything. He goes and puts on his suit and goes to work. He's deceived. He doesn't look good. And too many of us, we go, it's not good, but that's all right. I'm going to live with it because, well, I want to. And, and then we wonder why storms come on this side. Can I tell you what the greatest joy of my job is? It's not preaching. Probably the greatest joy of my job is when I'm sitting in my office week in and week out. And I get a call, I get a voicemail, or I get an email that goes something like this. Here's one I got, I think... Uh, two weeks ago, give you the gist of it. Pastor, I just want you to know, this Sunday meant the world to me, paraphrase. Because I remember a couple years ago, sitting in your office, you looked me in the eye, and with love and grace, but no compromise, you said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to do this for us. Do you remember that, Pastor? I wrote him back. I said, do I remember it? I could take you to the time, the place, because it hurt me deeply because I know that this, these people I was talking to, they were probably going to leave the church because I wouldn't do something that they asked. I said, sorry. They walked out. I knew they were mad. Three, four, I don't know how many years later, I get this email two weeks ago and says, Pastor, thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for teaching me to do what's right. I go, oh, that made my day. That made my week. Matter of fact, that made the rest of the year for me. But then I got another one this week. I said, Pastor, I got caught up in some media gossip. I know you've talked about it before that, you know, we not to be the receptacle of it. We're to be the stoppers of it. So I want you to know, I just asked Jesus to forgive me and would you do this and this for me to help me? And I wrote him back and I said, yeah, I'm proud of you. Way to go. Way to stand up. Now be courageous and tell those people that it stops. You stand up and you tell them that you're wrong and they're wrong. See, when someone hears something and then it changes their life, or it calibrates their life. I just want to go, only God. I can't do that. You can't, only God. And I probably get at least one or two of those emails a week when people say, can I ask you, has anybody had any of that kind of stuff happen to you? Not that you got the email, but that you could say, that's why I ask you to share. Because if, if, if God isn't, if God isn't speaking to you and challenging you in the deep recesses of your heart and he isn't kind of just touching this area lovingly and graciously but straightforwardly, if he isn't touching these areas, then you're not dealing with the God that's talking about here in the Bible because he loves you too much to sit there and let you do things that will bring storms to your life. Let me finish by reminding you, everything I'm talking about today comes back to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't giving us a new ethic. He is calling us to a new relationship that when he says, follow me, I'm going to begin to change those things in your life. Whether it's adultery or a Nestle's Crunch addiction, I'm going to work to change it because it's going to hurt you. See, being a Christian isn't primarily about keeping rules, but the root is first and foremost a love and a devotion to this person that died for you. And then as you begin to listen and obey, 
the root is the relationship, but the fruit is a changed wife, and you're different. You don't talk the way you do, did. You don't act the way you did. And when you do, you acknowledge it and say, Ah, I was wrong. Forgive me, God. Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Does that sound like easy believism? I'm going to get baptized and I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. I'm going to go live the way that I want to live. No. Jesus says, if you love me. See, can you imagine Jesus standing here right now? Honey, what's your name? Alyssa. Do you love me? Sure. Sure. Not a good answer. (laughs) Pretty flippant. Not very, you know, not really. but, But if she said, oh, yeah, pastor, I just love you. You know what I'd say to her? I'd say, okay, go live a pure life. Treat people right. Love people. Love Jesus. Spend time with him every day and do whatever he says. Oh, that's love. See, how many of you parents have ever thought this? I've trained my kids. I've taught my kids. I've loved my kids. I've provided for my kids. I just wish they'd show me love by doing what I say, following my example, living out what I've tried to communicate. Why is it as adults, and we're called children of God, that it's so difficult for us to do that with the one who's perfect? We're not talking about perfection here, loved ones. We're talking about a direction toward Jesus. Jesus said this in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love him, and I'll show myself to him. You want to see Jesus? You really want to see him? Obey him. Do what he says. That's what he's saying. See, love for Jesus isn't this warm, fuzzy feeling. It's doing what he wants. There's no point telling Jesus you love him and then you go out and do what you want and live like hell and break his heart. That's not living for him. A lot of people say, well, you know, I've confessed him, got baptized, go to church a couple times a year, signed, sealed, ready to be delivered. No, you're not. This passage that I read today doesn't say anything about you knowing him. You know what the dividing line is? He says, I don't know you. Big gulp. What do you mean? What are you saying, Terry? Haven't heard this before. Well, read the Bible. I don't know you. Well, well, what does that mean? Can I tell you what I think it means? That word know there is the most intimate words. I don't want to be crass, but it's the word that goes back in the Hebrew to Adam knew Eve. I think I could say it this way. Are you spreading yourself open, your heart, to Jesus Christ today? Do you hide from him? Do you hide things from him? Well, he knows everything. Yeah, he does. But he didn't know this guy. And can I tell you what I think he's really saying is, are you open and saying, Jesus, I'm just going to spread my life open so you can come in and you can be a part of it. You can investigate it. You can touch and you can point out and you can pick on and you can show me anything that needs to be taken care of. And I'm going to respond because I love you. And I'm going to obey you. See, loved ones, sometimes the question isn't, do you know Jesus? Does he know you? And that's how you get to know Jesus. That's how he gets to know you. Here I am, Lord. I'm open. Be the lover of my soul. Speak to me today, to now, what I need to change, what's hurting me. And then you know what? You do it. It's like Nike Christianity. You just do it. And you don't wait.
That's why I gave you these Nestle's Crunch Bars. Most of us aren't dealing with the really big, bad things. Maybe some of you are. You need to take care of it. But it's the little things we let go. And they're the ones that will bring us the big storms that we can't stand against. So this is what I'm going to do as we close. I want you to take about four minutes. I'm just going to play some music, and I want you to say, Lord, speak to me. Come in. I want you to know me. Maybe you've never done this before. Maybe it's time you do that today. Invite him in to get to know you. And if there's any Nestle's Crunch Bars in your life, or there's any things you need to deal with, Say, Lord, maybe you need to write it down on your notes. Maybe you need to write it down on that little candy wrapper. But you take it with you. And you say, I'm going to build on the rock. And I'm going to deal with the things that God deals with. Amen. Bonhoeffer says, when a Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And that's what we do every day. Die to ourselves so we can live for our Lord. If you can, maybe just grab somebody's hand there. I want us to agree together that we're not going to be a church that buys into easy believism. We're going to be a church that doesn't believe in cheap grace. We're going to love Jesus and we're going to love people, but we're going to do what's right and what God calls us to do. Amen? Father, um, you never promised us a rose garden. You never said it would be easy. And I pray that today would be a gentle but very strong, firm reminder that some of the storms, God, that we bring on ourselves are just because we don't listen to you and do what you say. And that there's other storms that we face and you're going to protect us and undergird us and be with us because we're building on what you say. God, never let us think that just because we said something or do a couple little things uh, that that secures us. It's all about a relationship with you. Teach us, Lord, as we leave today, every day. God, come into me. Know me. I got this stuff going on. I'm going to tell you about it because I want you to know me. Give us that kind of character and, Lord, that kind of devotion to you. Love these people, Lord. They're like my little kids in some ways. So, Lord, help us to live out the commands of the Father. Thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. His face to shine upon you. Have a great day as you go forth.